Well, this morning I'm excited to begin with you our new sermon series, part one of our study in Daniel called Resolve. And we're going to see in the first six chapters of that book in the days ahead, great determination by the grace of God on behalf of Daniel and his three friends that will encourage us. And my hope is that you would not merely leave this room week after week saying, I learned more about Daniel. We hope you do, and we hope you understand this important book in the Word of God better. But our hope is that you would leave knowing more about yourself and more about God. Have you ever gotten to know someone, and as you got to know them, you got to know you? <laughs> I recall meeting with my college pastor most every week for the first couple years of college, as I got to know him, I would listen to his life and his story and say, you know, I want to be like that, or I'm not like that. I, I need to become more that way. And I learned a lot about me as I heard him tell his life experiences. Well, we're going to learn to see ourselves, our shortcomings in this great narrative of the book of Daniel. And even more important than that, we're going to certainly see more of the beauty, of the grandeur, of the greatness of our one and only God as we dive into this story together. Well, that's what we're talking about today, what we will learn together from Daniel. And there's two overarching principles and themes that will come up again and again and again. And the first one, number one on your outline, is simply this, how to trust God's sovereign hand. Let me read verses one and two from Daniel chapter one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasures of the house of his God. Now notice in verse 2 the very key ingredient here. It was that the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord was in control of all things, even when it seemed like there was no hope for Daniel, no hope for the people of Israel. And so we're going to note the theme of how to trust God's sovereign hand. Knowing God's character is so important. That's why I like that song the choir just sang. Matter of fact, that's a really... That's a really romantic song that Stephen picked out. Some of you are going, what is he talking about? It's romantic because it just so happens on June the 6th, 1992, the most beautiful guy you've ever seen in your life walked down the aisle of Hoffmantown Baptist Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico to that song. And the, y'all remember these things called organs? The organ was belting out a mighty fortress is our God. And we wanted our relationship to be built on the character of, of the greatness of our God, a mighty, mighty fortress. Well, as we get in this passage, one of the first things we note under number 1A is simply this. When God is not, quote, permitted to rule, he will often overrule. I put the word committed, permitted or allowed in quotes, because there's a sense where we don't permit God to do anything, and we don't, quote, allow God to do anything. But what I mean is how Daniel got to this point is that the people of God were warned by priests, warned by 
the, the priests were warned, the kings were warned, the prophets warned them again and again to put away their idols. And they didn't yield themselves to God. And so that's the sense where they didn't permit God to work in their lives, didn't allow God to work in their lives. Well, when we don't yield to God in that way, he's the one that has the last word. And he overruled their situation. They thought they could continue on rebelling, worshiping idols from other nations, conquering nations, bringing their gods into Israel, marry, intermarrying with other idol-worshiping ladies, bringing those, bringing those idols into the house, into the house of God, and get away with it. And God said, I have had enough. Sometimes we think we've actually handcuffed God because of our all-powerful human freedom. It's true that God's given us a basic sense of moral agency, but His will is freer. His will is bigger than ours. I read the story of a convenient uh, clerk, convenience store clerk in Seattle a, a month or so ago. There was a burglary in his store, and uh, he noted, he was sort of a gun enthusiast, he noted that the gun that was pulled on him, he said, this is a burglary, was fake was sort of a toy gun and uh, maybe it was a bb or a airsoft or something but he said he pulled out his firearm behind his desk and said i have a gun bigger than yours <laughs> at that point the robbers left and there is a sense where yes we have our freedom of choice but god says well my will my freedom is bigger than yours and i'm overruling in this situation because you continue to rebel. And just note that there will come a point in our own lives where God says, I'm overruling this situation, and I'm engineering my circumstances and my will for you. And, and this was a very painful lesson for Israel to learn as it is for us. We also note this principle from this story, B, under number one. It says this, when we feel governed by evil or trouble, we are still in the hands of God. Look, God's taking responsibility here. Have you ever noticed we have a real passion to get God off the hook? When trouble comes, when tragedy strikes, we say, oh, God didn't know anything about this. God didn't have anything to do with this. Well, we like God to come in and just mop up the mess when trouble's over, but we forget that even though we make real choices that are wrong, God's still in control in the ultimate sense over all things. And so God's claiming responsibility in verse 2 when he says, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. Yes, God used an enemy of Israel, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and said, I'm giving my king to you to discipline my people. It, it, it was a very insulting thing in Israel's eyes if they were to look at it on paper, but it simply was God's plan. And note this, though, that the, the reason that God was able to come in and mop up the mess that the people of Israel had made is because he was in control of all things. It was his hand that had the final word. And note, you might feel overwhelmed by trouble. You might feel overwhelmed by the consequences of your sin. Know that you're still ultimately in the hands of God. When I first, when I moved here and my kids began driving, I, I would thought they, they had it easy in the state of Florida there's, I thought they were going to have, like we had where I grew up, and that was a class called driver's ed. Well, everything's online. You take these tests online. You go to the, the DMV office. You take a test, and then a year later, you take a driver's test, and you're supposed to drive with your parents for 50 hours between that year. 
Most of y'all remember going to those boring uh, defense, those uh, driver's ed classes and watch films about people getting killed at railroads for hours upon hours. Well, I was in that class, and y- you know, uh, part at the end of that driver's ed class, you get in the car with three other students and your teacher, and you drive around town. Well, these cars were so cool, I wish I owned one, because on the passenger side is a brake. <laughs> I love to have one of those. I have two more kids to teach how to drive, and I've got to get me one of those for my baby boy. I know he's going to need that. Well... I'm the only person I've ever known that the lady used the brake on. (laughs) Aren't you ready to go to lunch with me? I mean, here we are leaving Southwest High School and getting on to Loop 820, I-20 in um, Southwest Fort Worth, and we're getting on, and she sang some some things to me. To this day, I still think I was okay, but uh, we're getting getting into the the, uh, turn lane, and she was saying something, and I thought I was doing what she said. Then she began yelling something to me, and then she slammed on her brake. And everyone behind me, my three former friends, I guess, from high school, I think were relieved that she was in control. (laughs) Now, I want you to know something. When life seems to overwhelm you, and you think you are at the whim of a Nebuchadnezzar in your life, you are at the whim of someone else's evil choices, where someone is influencing you, poking you, and prodding you, and you feel like there's no way you can ever get out of this, know that God has one of those cars with the big old brake, and he will push it anytime he wants to. Whenever he's ready, and some of you are going, well, I'm ready right now for him to push it quick. He'll push it when he's ready. And we are, what that means is God's in control, and we are never outside of his sovereign hand. C under number one is also this truth, is that God surprisingly prepares us for his assignments. In verse three it says, then king ordered Aspenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Well, in this deportation, there were three different deportations in 605 and 598, and then the big one in the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. And it seems like Daniel and some of the nobility were taking in a sort of a light evacuation. It still was probably painful because as the little cartoon showed us, Daniel had it made. He was one of the rich, lucky, bright, smart, handsome ones of the day. And all of a sudden, when he was taken, for all he knew, he was going to dig latrines for this new imperialist king. He didn't know his future, but God prepared him for an incredible assignment. I I thought about how uh, painful an evacuation must be, and I remember right after the Hurricane Katrina, when I was living in Corpus Christi, there was another storm brewing in the Gulf, and and the weather said it was coming right toward the Gulf of Corpus Christi. It it seemed as though it were zeroing in on that, and a, a day before it was to land, our city had something we'd never had in modern history, and that was a mandatory evacuation of Corpus Christi, a city of almost 300,000 people. Well, you can imagine, I mean, I, had, I was asking people that lived there longer, and I said, we never heard of this. A few of them said, we're staying, and I said, I'm not staying. And so we got on a very crowded highway out and all, all the way to San Antonio, and several hours later, we made it safely to Nana's house in Fort Worth. And I asked the boys the other day if they remember that time, and they said, that was the best. Because it just so happened, a mandatory evacuation happened during a school week. (laughs) So they spent three days being grandmothered (laughs) instead of going to school. They loved that evacuation. 
But for most people, it's not a pleasant thing. A modern example of a city evacuation is in 1975. Some of you bravely uh, fought in the Vietnam War, and in 1975, one of the reasons for it had to do with Cambodia, and there was a, a dictator, a communist leader by the name of Pol Pot and his Khmer Rouge that within a very short number of days went to a city of 2.5 billion people called Nam Pen, Cambodia, and killed the professionals, the doctors and the lawyers there, and then sent 2.5 million people out into the fields where they did forced labor, and it was popularized in a story and a movie called The Killing Fields. And much tragedy happened, although the gospel of Christ pervaded in those fields in many instances, uh, still it was a terrible thing. And, and I, I would imagine Daniel's was somewhere between The Killing Fields and my corpus Christi evacuation. It was a very difficult moment, but God prepared him for an assignment. Many of you remember when Charles Colson was an aide to President Nixon and was convicted in the Watergate scandal. And during the time of his leaving the White House and the trial and the conviction, he became a follower of Christ. And when he was found that guilty by the courts and served a nine-month prison sentence, he was interviewed and then put a mic in his face before he went to prison and said, what do you think of this, Mr. Colson? He said, well, I've become a follower of Jesus Christ, and I've committed that I'm going to either serve God out here in the free world, or I'm going to serve God in prison. So whatever happens to me, I'm in the hands of God. And, and maybe you've been in that situation where you had no idea that God was using something difficult, was using your Nebuchadnezzar, was using your deportation, was using a challenging life to prepare you for an assignment. Maybe it was to share Christ with somebody that you never would have met. Maybe it was to deepen character in your life and to grow you in cheerful generosity with your time and talents and resources that God is giving you. And he's preparing you for an assignment through difficulty. We're going to see that again and again. Also, D, under number one, something that never gets old, that we never graduate from, is simply remembering that God will use any situation for our ultimate good. Many of us take a daily dose of Romans 8.28, which is the, the verse that, that says that God works for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And we feel that and we believe that conviction. There's also sort of an Old Testament Romans 8.28. It's in Psalm 66, verse 11 and 12. And it's one that gives God responsibility. It acknowledges God's sovereign hand, even in affliction, and it says, you brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. It says, you let men ride on our heads. You brought us through fire and water. And then it says this, but you brought us to a place of abundance. And if I were to pass the mic around here about times where men rode on your heads and you went to prison or you were laid burdens on your backs or you went through fire and water, we would hear story after story of people saying, yes, but God brought me to a place of abundance. You know, Daniel and his three friends, in one sense, had it made in Jerusalem, but the Lord looked and said, you know what? These men are going to have greater impact than they ever could imagine if I bring them through the fire. And I would say that certainly God did use Daniel because here we are several thousand years later still talking about him and joining together for weeks in central Florida to say, Lord, speak to me through your word, through this man's life. God is still using this story for good and he'll use your story for good when you see things from his sovereign, mighty hand. Well, that's the first principle that will pop up over and over in these 
weeks ahead in these 12 chapters, but there's another principle that has a dominant theme, at least in the first several chapters, and it's principle number two on your outline, and it's this, not only how to trust God's sovereign hand, but also number two, how to stand up to pressure. Can you imagine the pressure that these young men were under? They're teenagers. Uh, the best we can guess at their age, it's not stated, but when you do the math, and uh, some, sometimes the book of Daniel is not in chronological order, but we forget that in some of the stories, the more popular ones, he is a man in his 80s. And at this point, the best we can grasp, but he's about 15 years old, taken from his parents, taken from his family, put in a new place. There was an amazing amount of pressure upon him. And we don't graduate from pressure either. Our pressure gets different in different ages and stages and different issues and challenges we face, but we all are going to face pressure. And there's three different aspects of pressure that we're going to see in these next few verses that, that Daniel stands up to. That, let me read in verse 4. It gives a little more explanation about these men from nobility. It says that they were this young men without any physical defect. That's hard to picture, but that is what the scripture says. Handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. So these were the cream of the crop. These were the scholarship students and had everything going their way. Those are the kind of men that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to take in for a three-year session and do a good old brainwashing. That was his agenda, and we can sense that there is an agenda to brainwash us in our day as well. And, and this adds to the pressure of the enemy and of the world on us. And we must, first of all, resist the pressure to, A, under number two, surrender our thinking. They were going to study the language of Babylon, which was okay, just language learning, but number two, they were going to also study Babylonian literature. Now, there's many of you in this room that are well-read and learned and like to know a lot about a variety of things. And one of the good things of that kind of discipline is that it will enable you and give you opportunities to share Christ with many different people because you can relate to their different walks of life. And so Daniel was taking something that was forced upon him and using it for good. But archaeologists have found that part of the learning, part of the literature of Babylon had a lot to do with sorcery, with divination, with omens, with what we would refer to today as the occult. They were taking four Hebrew boys and likely others that followed Yahweh, the one true covenant-keeping God of Israel, and saying, we want to invite all these other philosophies, all these other worldviews, not to mention the dark side, not to mention demons and the many gods of Babylon. These are now what you are supposed to adhere to. The question remains for us, how do we respond in such a situation? Are we to surrender our thinking to this world? It all begins in our mind. And sometimes Christians are given the label open-minded. It's a good question. Are Christians to be people that are open-minded? My question to someone that would, might ask me that would be, well, it all depends on how you define open-minded. 
The harder you press the term open-minded, to some it simply means abandon, abandoning your view and grasping mine. You're open-minded if you abandon Judeo-Christian values and you adhere to the values of this age. That's open-mindedness by some, and I would look at that definition and say, absolutely not. We are not to be open-minded in that sense. Anytime the line is drawn where the authority is shifted from God to reason to this world, shut tight the mind because we, will, we can open it so wide our Christian brain will fall right out. However, there is a sense where we need to have a aspect of open-mindedness. Proverbs 18.2 talks about that, and it says that a fool delights in airing his own opinion since he has no desire to get wisdom. Sometimes we as Christians come across the wrong way, and that is that we have got everything perfectly figured out. And there develops not just an arrogance, but a lack of love, concern, and gentleness about our worldview when the opposite should be the case. When you really know the truth, you're so secure in it that you can share it humbly, meekly, and with compassion. And so there needs to be an open-minded demeanor about us while never surrendering our conviction. Even when it comes to some of the finer points of theology, we should be willing to listen to brothers that we disagree with. It was Martin Luther, the reformer, that said if anyone thinks his theology is perfectly correct in every aspect, he need only to reach up and feel his ears and feel that they are the ears of a donkey. There needs to be some aspect of open-mindedness, but we must not surrender our thinking to this age. Now in verse 5, it gets a little dicier because it says this, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Well, we're going to find as we look at this story next week, beginning in verse 8, that there was a real problem with this food thing. Yep, you can change my name. Yep, I'll learn your crazy language. Okay, I'll go to Babylonian literature class, but I'm not eating that food. I'm not drinking that stuff because it is in conflict with the Word of God. Now, we'll get specific as to why that was in conflict with the Word of God next week, but the point is that, B, we must resist the pressure to, B, resist God's word. When God's word has spoken, that is our line in the sand. The world says, there's no line in the sand. You decide what is true for you. You make up the rules. As you go, each situation is different. And what happens is the very air we breathe tends to have an influence on us if we're not extremely careful. I remember going to school with some godly young men that started out but they would entertain all these ideas, and within a few years, some of them abandoned the faith. And we're going to hear next week, all over the news and all in the, the world, they're going to be celebrating something that we despise, and that is the 41st anniversary of Roe versus Wade. And it will be told by politicians and social workers that this was the greatest step of a modern society finally recognizing a woman's right to choose. 
And we can maybe have sympathy and say, you know what? Maybe it is important for a woman to have the free right to choose. But then we look at the scripture where God is all about life. Choice is important, but it does not trump life. Why? Because God came that we might have life and might have it to the full. And we realize that God alone is the author of life and he only has the right to take away life. And when we surrender our thinking to this world, we begin to resist God's word. We begin to become infiltrated with things that are so opposed to the truth. Now, a few weeks ago, some of y'all were shaking in your boots because you thought your favorite show was going to be canceled. A lot of you wish that a certain Louisiana duck collar with a certain length of beard might have gone to charm school just a little bit. But the reaction from people that disagreed with the biblical position went something like this. We live in a modern society, and we have to embrace the way that the world is going. To do so is hateful. If you go against the way that modern society has declared what is right, then you hate. And if you hate, you must be forced off of television. The world will speak that way. But we come along with love and says, you know what? God has defined the biblical sexual ethic and it is beautiful and right in his eyes. And we trust God's wisdom in doing so. Daniel had some tough decisions to make to resist the pressure that was now forced upon him and to just simply cave and say, you know what? I'm not going to rock the boat this time. I'm going to go with the flow because it might get me promoted. I've got a lot to lose here. I've just been deported, but we're going to see courage standing up and saying, right is right. And uh, there is a, a, a powerful story waiting for us. Now, what happens, we finally get introduced to the names of these people in verse 6 and 7. And it says, among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officials gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. What's going on here? What's with the name change? Well, they were saying, you used to be called something that related to the Hebrews. Now, you are full-fledged Babylonians. Matter of fact, the name Daniel, it means Elohim is my judge. Elohim, a Hebrew name for God, describing the largeness and greatness of God. And Belteshazzar, it means Bel, may Bel protect his life. It was the name of a Babylonian god, and it said, okay, you used to be accountable to Yahweh, now Baal, Daniel, is your protector. And so we call you Belteshazzar. Same happened with all the other three Hebrew boys' names. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh, Hebrew name for God, describing God's covenant-keeping faithfulness. And his name Shadrach means Abu is exalted. Abu, a Babylonian name for God. We're to praise this Babylonian God. And then Mishael means who is what Elohim is, who is as great as the one true God. And Meshach, playing on his name, it says this, who is what Aku is, a name for that was reverenced among the Babylonians for their God. Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. He's a faithful covenant-keeping God. And his new name was Abednego, which means the servant of 
Nebo, another name for a Babylonian god. What was going on was they were trying to dilute their worship. Guys, you've grown up being these names, now you're this because we have made you into a new person. The third pressure that they were supposed to resist and that you and I are to resist in our walk with Christ is number letter C on your outline, and that is the pressure to dilute our worship. This world can't stand that you want to only worship God. And so they want to dilute you. They want to change your name, so to speak. Maybe by calling you names. Maybe by slowing down your zeal for the Lord. Hey, don't take this God thing so seriously. But brothers and sisters, you must let no one, nobody, no thing ever distract you from your sole exclusive worship of the one true God. Don't let anything surrender your thinking, resist God's word, and dilute your worship as the pressures of life begin caving on you. As we consider these principles from God's word in verses 1 through 7 today, I'd like us to now enter into a time of response. Maybe some of you are like a young man in the first service that came forward and say, I'm ready to receive Christ in my life. Maybe that's you today, that you understand that Jesus Christ died alone for your sins and that he hung on the cross to pay the full payment and if you today would turn from sin and place your faith in Christ you can become a child of God and receive God's gift of eternal life as we consider this passage let's take a moment and bow together and as we're bowed before him what will be your response to him living Lord we are so thankful for your word we're thankful for the story and I'd like to pray that we would not surrender our thinking to this world. We would not give our convictions to the convenience of the day.